this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This is the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. Recording on Thursday, January 26, 2023. I'm Jeff O'Neill. She's Rebecca Shinsky coming to you from bookriot.com. I've got to say, today is one of those days where we're recording a Patreon episode right after this. And it's so juicy <laughs> that I need to focus on the news stories because... Same. We are talking about the book and movie White Noise, uh, Mm -hmm. originally written by Don DeLillo, recently adapted for Netflix by Noah Baumbach, um, starring Adam Driver and Greta Gerwig. And it's a lot. This is Rebecca's (laughs) first time having White Noise tuning in, putting her um, RCA 19-inch cathode ray tube between two stations and letting the Mm -hmm. white noise flow over her. I'm so excited. I have no idea what you're going to (laughs) say, except I know there's a lot to say. Um, so if you're not a Patreon member and you're interested in that, go to book Riot, or excuse me, patreon.com slash podcast. And if you are, you can look for that in your feed next week. Um, so there you go. Rebecca, any other teases you want to do? Don't tell yeah. me, but how, how is this going to go? What, wh- well, what can you tell the people about the conversation we're about to have? And by I people, I mean me. did not know anything about white noise going in, yeah. which, you know, is how I like to go into books. I had a wild time. Except that it was a thing, right? Like Except white that it was a thing, thing right? It was a thing. But right. I didn't yeah. know. I didn't know anything about the plot. I knew that Bombach was into it and had spent a lot of time on the adaptation. This is very far from his usual subject matter, so that's interesting. And I watched it Monday evening this week while Bob was out with friends, and I, he came home and was like, "How was it?" And I just had this like dazed look on my face where he was like, "That kind of says it all." I was like, "I don't know." how to talk about what I just experienced. I'm going to try to articulate it by the time Jeff and I record that show. So I've been simmering. It was quite an experience. I have a lot of, like a lot of feelings and a lot of sounds to make. I don't know so much about words. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We will together figure out how to say and feel something coherent about the book and movie White Noise. It will not be boring. No, no, it was not boring. Yeah. No. All right, so I watched it last night, okay, and um, that is a cinematic experience. Mm-hmm, it is a sure is. definitely a movie um, <laughs> with people in it, and things happen. Yep. There you go. Uh, we've got some orders of operations. We're doing some hiring, Rebecca. Indeed what are we, we looking are. for right now? Who 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 might be a good fit for for some of the the chairs we have to for people to sit in? We are hiring an ad operations associate, which will be a person joining our. Ad operations team, you know, we sell advertising on the internet. It takes a lot of moving parts to get all of the images and the book links and the language for podcast ads and all of that stuff um, in place. And so this person will be joining our team, helping make that happen, having some interaction with clients, a lot of interaction with our, our whole team and serving to do stuff with Salesforce, stuff with customer relations uh, systems, all kind of things. Uh, the description mm-hmm. can be found at riotnewmedia.com slash careers. We'll put links in the show notes for that. We're also hiring a full stack web developer, somebody to help write the code, make all of these trains run on time from the back end of things, looking for um, some particulars, but especially experience with WordPress because Book Riot and um, our other sites are all powered on WordPress and we'll drop those links in the show notes also. Yeah, so if that's a good fit for you or someone you know, um, come come, come uh, tell us about yourself and, and let yep. us know. You too can put ads in podcasts. If that's something they're interested in. Um, and then, do we want to do? Do we want to do our TBR shout out now, or do you want to wait a little bit? How, how should we do the next piece? We got we got a lot of tell you about stuff. Patreon, yeah. hiring, Valentine's gifting. We can do this now. Let's do this. Let's do. Let's this do now. it now. You're like you know, halfway to it. Let's do it now. Yeah. So TBR. I don't know if you know about this. We've talked about it before. It's our customized, personalized book recommendation service. You can go find a link in the show notes. It's going to be there. 
but you can give it a gift, maybe especially a good Valentine's gift mm-hmm. for a significant other or yourself or someone like that. There's a digital version. You fill out a questionnaire. These are humans, people that have made content for us that we've connected with. This is not chat GPT giving you, <laughs> I have more to say about, we haven't talked about that at all, but I've got kind of something related to talk about later. Yeah. Humans that talk to other humans, have their own experience and write customized recommendations for you. And you don't just get a list of titles. There's a little explanation of why it goes in there. Mm-hmm. So it's a digital version, but there's also the hardcover where you get the books, the physical books themselves, plus the uh, plus a physical recommendation letter. Really fun, been a really good addition to our lineup. We learned a lot about this. We've had people stick around for a long time to do it. So go check it out. Um, it's mytbr.co. You can find out, but there's a link in the show notes here, especially to gifting if you want to get all the way there. The show notes, as always, you can find at bookriot.com slash listen. Uh, all right, and I guess that takes us to our first real sponsor break. And then we've got follow-up. We've got stories. We've got two TikTok mentions here because we are in touch with things. But first, a sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Hachette Audio. Three years ago, sports agent Myron Balatar gave a eulogy at the funeral of his client, renowned basketball coach Greg Downing. So why, you may ask, is Greg now being placed at the scene of a double, not a singular, but a double homicide? I also wonder. So Greg Downing, who Myron gave a eulogy for, is a suspect and Myron needs some answers. So Myron and Wynn, longtime friends and colleagues, set out to find the truth, but the more they discover about Greg, the more dangerous their world becomes. Secrets, lies, and a murderous conspiracy that stretches back into the past churn at the heart of Harlan Coben's blistering new novel, Think Twice. And the audiobook is narrated by his longtime narrator, Steve Weber. Now, if you don't know about Steve, Steve gives each character distinct voices and accents, making this a more immersive listen. Make sure to check out Think Twice by Harlan Coben. And thanks again to Hachette Audio for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Yen Press, your favorite publisher of Japanese manga and novels. Tragedy unfolds on the first day of spring when a train derails at Nishi Iwakahama Station, changing the course of hundreds of lives. Two months later, a rumor spreads of a ghost with the power to send others back in time, inevitably attracting those who seek a chance to go back to that fateful day. The God of Nishi Yuagahama Station by Takeshi Morase is a moving story about the unpredictability of life. It aims to comfort tired souls and answers the famous question, what would you do if you had a second chance? Told through the eyes of a student, a son, and a bride-to-be, this heart-wrenching novel is a reflection of how grief impacts us and what we must do to pick up the pieces. Don't miss this literary debut full of fabulism and time travel by Japanese writer Takeshi Murase. To learn more, please visit yinpress.com. And thanks again to Yin Press, your favorite publisher of Japanese manga and novels, for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Gallery Books. So Anna Green thought she was marrying Liam West for access to subsidized family housing while at UCLA, which is an interesting reason to marry someone, but you know, in this economy. So anyway, she signed divorce papers when the graduation caps were tossed and she thought she was done. Eh, she wasn't. Three years later, Anna is a starving artist living paycheck to paycheck while West is a Stanford professor. Now he is part of a conglomerate. His family owns this mega grocery store chain. He's not interested in working for them, but he is interested in those greenbacks, honey, that come in the form of a $100 million inheritance. To get it, he has to be married for five years. That's where our girl Anna comes back into play. So the two will fake a marriage, but as he gets to know her and gets to appreciate the feisty, foul mouth, paint splattered girl that she is, he'll begin to wonder if the money is worth the love of his life. Pick up The Paradise Problem by Christina Lauren to find out if it is. And thanks again to Gallery Books for sponsoring this episode. Updates. 
Uh, let's do listener feedback first and then updates. So sure. you had a listener feedback first. Yes. Why don't you take I got yours first? a message from a listener named Alex. So thank you, Alex, letting us know after last week's conversation where we were, or maybe a couple of weeks ago, where we were trying to figure out uses for the um, virtual reality goggles for reading and yep. what must that be like. And maybe it's hands, maybe hands free is the appeal and all those things. And Alex let me know that there was a big TikTok trend of people talking about Kindle remote controls that mm. you blue, you Bluetooth the remote control to your Kindle, then you can pop your Kindle up on any stand or I don't know, sit it against your pillow or whatever you want to do. And you can just click the remote control to turn the page. You don't actually have to be holding or touching the mm. Kindle. So like Alex, you were correct. We did miss that because I think we're both pointedly trying to spend not very, I don't spend any time on no. TikTok. I know you were doing some nope. research at one point, but we're not ticking or talking. So we did definitely miss that trend. Cool to know that that exists and that you can achieve that same hands-free reading experience without having to put on VR goggles. Mm -hmm. I would, I think that's pretty neat. A Siri remote, con uh, Kindle remote control. I never thought about that. I was wondering, um, I wonder if there's like voice commands you could do with iPads and stuff. That, mm. I, if, turning a page every time would be annoying to be like, hey, dingus, turn the page. But <laughs> I guess right. you could do it that way. If yeah. <laughs> and pretty interesting I'm, there. I didn't do any further Googling. I trust Alex here that they mm. were Kindle remote controls, but I had the like, would it work in the Kindle app on my iPad or would I have to be using a Kindle? Probably just a Kindle, but probably just a Kindle. Yeah. I'm glad that that exists for people. Yeah. Cool. Related to some of our discussion, link sharing, speculation about working conditions and pay rates. Um, I'm, I'm going to smudge out some of the details here. I got mm. permission from the listener who wrote in to do so about her own experience working at an independent, smaller publisher. This is one thing that I think you brought up initially in talking about there was a story about some of the other publishers not being super excited about the unionization efforts because there's transparency involved and transparency means actual data and actual data means people can look around and say, hey, wait a minute, mm. they're getting paid that much, I should be. And the experience here, a North American publisher, a smaller publisher, this person got into the publishing industry, had a junior level position um, and was making... I'll say the equivalent of 35-ish to 40,000 US dollars. And this is not too long ago, like four to five years ago. Entry level, enjoyed the work, but then was looking around for P&L for one of the titles, I think, and saw a document they definitely were not supposed to see <laughs> that oh. had everyone's salary on it. And that the most senior person that she knew of, or they knew of, I actually don't even remember the pronouns here. I'm just kind of regressing to the mean for who works in publishing. Um, they didn't even this was the most senior person they knew of in their department who had been there a while. They were a manager, production manager, and was making 55 okay. after many, many years of wow. working there. And this person was just like, I have to leave. Mm -hmm. I, I can't, I like doing this, but even if it goes well and I get promoted and this is the kind of job I could aspirationally look towards, like this is a good outcome. This is not even just sort of an average outcome. Like this was a, be a good, this would be a good result for her career in this particular company and still just making that much. And it was just not enough. And she's moved on to do something else. And I think that's probably not uncommon of mm -hmm. a story, Rebecca. And these, I mean, this, mm -hmm. this particular where we, you find the PNL and you actually get transparency, but right. that dynamic is not probably uncommon. So I wanted yeah. to throw that into the, to the mix to give your, knowledge slash suspicious suspicions slash some deep background stuff that you mm -hmm. and I know a little bit about some some voice and specificity I remember sort of early to mid COVID seeing some Twitter threads from folks that were relatively senior in publishing talking about why they were leaving and not just leaving the publisher yeah. that they worked for but leaving publishing uh, largely related mm -hmm. to working conditions and pay. And I think that that is the real risk to the industry that's hovering behind the individual uh, or the specific case with the HarperCollins union pushing right now is that there's a point where people get tired of pushing to just make a reasonable amount of money at their employer when they could take those transferable skills somewhere else. Like if you're a marketer in publishing, you could learn to market some other product. If you can yeah. edit books, you can learn to apply those skills elsewhere. 
ad nauseum for whatever the different positions are. Like, I think the industry is at risk of losing a lot of talent and we don't have any way of knowing how much talent we've already lost in this business because publishers and booksellers, because, you know, fair pay is pretty hard to come by, much harder than it should be. Um, So interesting to hear that, man, that like that moment of getting access to all that information must have been thrilling and disappointing. And I wonder now, like... New York has a law that just went into effect at the beginning of the year. I was wondering about this, too. That requires um, job postings to list the pay range. And from what I've seen, like I follow this stuff because I do a lot of our HR type functions. Mm -hmm. And from what I've seen, compliance with that law is very creative (laughs) so far. There are like there are companies that are complying with it and listing the salaries that are available, which BT dubs, if you wish to check out a job at Book Riot, we list the salaries for our jurisdictions on our job postings we have for a very long time. But then there are places that are like the pay range is ninety thousand to nine (laughs) hundred thousand. Like letter of the law, but definitely not the spirit. Not spirit of the law, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. how that gets enforced, if it gets enforced, is like really yet to be determined because this is so new. But that, you know, is a thing that publishers are going to have to start doing. I was checking this like up through December, just occasionally looking at job postings that I would see in Publishers Weekly for like any kind of position at any publisher. And there were never salary ranges posted publicly i never saw one um i haven't gone back to look and see what publishers are doing but folks who are at least thinking about getting into the industry will be able to see some kind of range that's hopefully helpful information and not ninety thousand to nine hundred thousand um and help them determine that we're just we're going to lose people or we're not going to attract good talent because of this and it's it's really concerning in the big picture i think the industry is gonna have to take a hard look at itself and the harper collins union is really helping push for that you know i was in um as i as my want to do i made my weekly sojourn over to powell's uh, yes um just to look around and see what was around and i had another um we're early in the year and so like i have a kind of a good handle of what the new books out are and what are the ones that are most interesting to me maybe the ones that have gotten a push from their publisher but now I'm three weeks in, and now it's starting the time where I'm starting to lose track. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more. It's been a few weeks. More books keep coming. I'm behind some of the stuff I wanted to read, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't matter. But the the specter, the um, airborne toxic event that, <laughs> that hangs over all of us is how many damn books get published. Yes. And I kind of connected that with this piece of, I think one of the reasons there's so many more books published than really the market can bear because, frankly, I don't know. Would you say 90% of books don't earn out? Yes. Is it something like that? Yes. Yeah. And that can only really happen, I think, if that trickles down to people working mm-hmm. in the industry because they want to work into it and not being paid market wages, essentially. And that subsidizes the abundance that we get from books. And I'm not saying that's good or bad. I just think, how can it be? I've always wondered this. How can it be that there are these many books? How can it be that it's worth it, the effort and money, the printing to put books out. And you and I do this for a living. And mm-hmm. there's books that come out, A, that we're interested in, we'll never be able to read. And we read a lot. But books we don't, we haven't heard of, that once we hear about them, we're interested in reading. And we do this for a living. And I'm like, that's us. Think of how this is for everybody right. else. And I think a lot of that must come from, or some of it must come from, that it's not as expensive to make all of these books as it would be if it were rubber tires, mm-hmm. something that doesn't have the imperture of status or class or art or, you know, what vocational, whatever you want to call it. And probably you're right. We'd probably lose people. Would it be bad? How much would we notice if there were 40% fewer books published and that people that worked in the publishing industry got paid <laughs> market wages? Would that yeah. be bad? I don't know, Rebecca. I know. Like, it I really got me thinking be... about how this whole ecosystem works. I think that would be Great, actually. And I know we've talked a few times over the last decade about fewer, better books. Um, there's a yeah. clothing company that I, I shop from called Kuyana that I think that's how you pronounce it, that um, that's their motto is fewer, better. And it's like higher end, high quality pieces that are intended to last you a long time. I would love mm. that from books if we had fewer books, but a higher percentage of them were good. And we're going to reach audiences and have 
broad enough appeal to earn out or to come close to earning out because this thing where like publishing several books that aren't going to earn out gets underwritten by say like James Patterson selling a floppity jillion mm-hmm. books but then the publisher still has to figure out how to be profitable yeah, is right. really challenging and does feel I think it feels unsustainable because it is unsustainable once employees start recognizing that they deserve to be treated better and paid fairly and that there are other places they can go work to get that. Like that's been my biggest question about the HarperCollins union so far is like, is all this like really is all that work worth it? And don't get me wrong. Like I believe in Mm. unions and I believe that if you are being treated unfairly, you should, you have the right to push your employer and to bargain for better working conditions. But I'm sure these are talented folks who could take those talents elsewhere. And at what point does it become no longer worth it to to fight that fight just to stay in the industry when the industry Mm. in many ways wants to exploit that vocational awe that you have about being here? It's an interesting question. And I want to give people agency in their own decision makings. Mm-hmm. Like maybe some people are willing to take a pretty sizable discount to work in a field. They sure. Like. You and I have talked about this. Like, I mean, not to tell tales, but we could go do other jobs and probably get paid substantially more. Sure. But, but we make market wages. With <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I'm saying right. everyone makes trade-offs. Yeah. We're not, we're not homo economists, right? Like the Bob, no, the Bob no, Taylor yeah. thing of everyone's making a decision to maximize your, the number of dollars that come in. So I want to give them the same kind of credence I would give, the grace I would give myself to be of like, course. not make an optimal um, kind of decision. But is, it, is, that thought, is that thought about? Is that talked about? I don't know. People want to publish books. There's a lot of books that get out there. I think a lot of authors get a book deal and they publish a book and no one reads it and buys it. And that's demoralizing in its own way too. Um, and I don't want to argue for people not pursuing their dreams or that we've got enough voices or anything else like no, that. No. But just from a just from a straight up the number of titles that are for sale in a given <laughs> year, a given week, in a given quarter. Um, I mean, just one example, like I could probably just make the Knopf double day front list, just as an example. I mm-hmm. wouldn't do this. I could make their front list catalog my reading for the quarter, every quarter, and I could do a pretty good job of it. And I, I have a good reading time and I would get to a third of the titles. And that's just Knopf double day, which yeah. is a part of a part of the publishing industry. So I'm not sure, but you know, these ecosystems are all connected. And once you start pulling at one thread, uh, the Mm -hmm. other, it's not like the sweater just stays the same shape. If you start pulling at threads, Um, I'm given to understand that's how making clothing works, that (laughs) they're connected and you need all of them or a lot of them. Let me get away from knitting or whatever is happening. (laughs) Yeah, You're out Um, of your depth here. (laughs) Yeah, I really am. Uh, Another listener feedback thing that I thought was pretty interesting um, where did I put this? Oh, I'm sorry. Not a listener feedback thing. Um, let's get to uh update on the HarperCollins Union, I guess. That's the update on the story. Rebecca, you want to take that? For yeah, me for this is a quick update, but came out this morning on the 26th that HarperCollins has agreed to enter mediation with the union. Uh, so we will put the full press release that they've shared in the show notes. If you want to check that out. Um, but that's good news. And it's giving uh, the union members the, t- the impression, certainly, that the pressure that they're putting on HarperCollins is working. HarperCollins has recognized in some way that they need to come to the table, have some kind of conversation. Uh, the union's been on strike since November 10th, so they're, you know, well into now the fourth month. Um, yeah, into the third month. Um, but that's... That's a long time. Uh, we've been seeing some stories come out kind of sideways or even like just like tweet threads of like sort of unfortunate quality control things that are happening at HarperCollins where like, a, yeah. you know, like a, a book comes out with its publicity package and the quotes in the blurb are either just like mock-ups or were given by the author. And it's like, oh, too, this is too bad. Probably because Mike your Pompeo's publicity book is my favorite one. That yeah, that's I've seen. the Did one. Did you see that one? That's the one. That's the one. Yeah. Um, we're like, oh, well, yeah. This is because a lot of your publicity department is on strike, <laughs> and this is what happens. And maybe HarperCollins right. is really starting to feel that when you have a bunch of people mm-hmm. 
not coming to work and you rely on those people to do their work, publishers tend to run relatively lean, I think, it's going to have an impact on the product. And that's unfortunate. Um, so it looks like maybe HarperCollins is feeling that. Um, and I'll just be eagerly watching for what the outcomes of this mediation might be. Yeah, I hope I hope it gets resolved mm-hmm. and people can get back to work in a way they feel good about soon. Yeah. Um, the next one, we have not talked about the chat GPT stuff here. We've done a little bit in our work Slack. Um, as a former writer of, uh, a former instructor of, of uh, writing, um, I keep on some of my old listservs. And let's just say there's been some hand-wringing in the uh, composition pedagogy world about what to do about this. That's kind of neither here nor there. I found it a little bit interesting. I haven't really seen a use case for me. Um, I think that you know, like a lot of these things, it's it's pretty striking. Um, and then you start running up the limits of it. And I've played mm-hmm. around with it a little bit. And some results have been pretty striking. And some have been, well, a lot of results have been striking. Some have been strikingly good. And some have been strikingly, what was that exactly? But I really haven't like, here's a use for it in my life. Um, and here's something I could do cheaper and faster and better or some, you know, two or three of those three things all at once. Um, but I read, um, subscribe through RSS to Marginal Revolution by Tyler Cowan. He's an economist and he runs kind of an old school blog in addition to his teaching gig where he does links and book recs and, you know, cool. no- notable things. And it's kind of my way of keeping in, I like to do this RSS and there's vanishingly few of these old school blogs and I like them for the industries that I'm interested in. And he posted one and he also with, um, Daniel Gross wrote this book called Talent that came out last year from St. Martin's. It was really good. I don't know if I remember, I should have recommended it to you personally, Rebecca. You didn't, but I'm looking at this site that you're about to talk about feeling like, how come no one told me this book exists? Yeah. Yeah. So it's about talent identification and hiring and, you know, beyond getting CVs and doing this interview process, how can you recognize talent and nurture it? It's, it's very interesting. Um, and Tyler Cowan has been on his blog linking to, he thinks ChatGPT is a huge deal and been linking to interesting things. And someone, and I don't have the name here because it's not on the website, put together a ChatGPT, I don't even know if it's a ChatGPT, I think that's a proprietary, but a large mm-hmm. language model um, algorithm, program. I don't even, I'm not even good enough to know what the right noun here, where basically by inputting the text of talent, and using the stuff that this stuff does gives you a little box where you can ask a question about the book and it will respond. Yeah. And it's, it's pretty, pretty cool. Interesting. It's pretty cool. It's very, I mean, from a design point of view, this is very like I'm a coder and let me get some clip art, but that's fine because the functionality is the minimum viable product here. And a, I don't think you're going to get the gist of the book other than if you did, if you bought like, you know, one of those two ninety nine Amazon Kindle summary of like for mm-hmm. business books. But if you have read a book, or listen to a book. This is what I was thinking about because I listened to this on audio and I was trying to remember something about it. Mm. This is pretty damn cool. Now, I'm putting IP, copyright, everything else to the side for a minute because those are enormous problems. But the core functionality of like, you know, what was that line? What was it? What did did Berkman say in 4,000 weeks about this thing? And since you can't, I mean, you could always search the Kindle version if you have a digital version, but what if you don't have a digital version? What if you got it from the library? It'd be kind of a cool resource. And I, this is one of the first ones like, oh, I could see a version of this that's wildly useful um, for just stuff that you've read before. Yeah. You know? I mean, it'd be crazy, right? Like, to, or very, very wild if we punched in white noise, right? What if the full text of white noise was available? <laughs> and we could be like, what was the name of the guy that right. died surfing? Yeah, I was thinking. Or, I or would... how did that guy die? I would love one of a tool like this for like all the management and self-help books, because, you know, like when you've (laughs) read as many of them as you and I have, you get to the place where you're like, I know the thing, but I can't remember which book I got it from, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is a challenge if you want to recommend the book to somebody else. And it would be great to be like, what? what book is this from? I used the, this, the chat bot for a talent and just typed in who should read this book. Cause I didn't know anything about uh. it until we, and it gave me a good answer. It says this book is intended for anyone who's interested in the topic of talent search and wants to become a better judge of talent. It's especially useful for entrepreneurs, business leaders, and anyone who's involved in hiring and managing people. And I was like, Oh, I wanna, I, Sold. do we know anyone like that? Yeah. If only I could, good. Yeah, like I as an oh. aside, I did ask chat GPT to write me a summary of white noise. And it did a very good one. <laughs> yeah. Just to see. Well, and one of the things that the chat GPT things are really good at are publicly accessible. And by public accessible, we mean 
it's got put on the internet somehow, mm-hmm. whether Google Books or internet. It's not good at things that are locked behind IP for some reason, like say the full text of white noise. Right. Unless there's a, you know, it gets it somehow. And the business models and the copyright and all that stuff is a huge problem. And I don't know how you would monetize this. How could you reimburse T- Tyler Cohen and Daniel Gross for doing the the labor, right? The intellectual labor and the publisher and all the people that we were just talking about make these books. Where if you just sat down with an OCR scanner and put it in there and it could basically be a tool. Yeah. Is there a subscription but model? Is it available for was... universities? I don't know how yeah. you would do it, but like somebody in like principle, um... it could be extremely fascinating. Like to go back to the business book example, if like if Harvard business review took their press and made this you know like I pay an annual subscription to Harvard business review so I can read all of their stuff and use the resources online I would pay like some sort of (laughs) add-on fee Mm -hmm. to have a chat feature where I could be like okay HBR like which one of the floppity Jillian books of yours that I've read had this thing in it or what was like what was the principle around that thing again or that equation or whatever that would be so so useful and I think probably in specialty subjects like that maybe we'll start to see some some things like this get developed where there's the sort of owner or the the copyright holder of the intellectual material can still find some interesting ways to make it available as a one-off book situation. It does seem a little bit more challenging. This is really creative marketing for this talent book though. Yeah. yeah I don't think it's marketing. I think someone who reads his blog knew he would be interested in it. And just, just like, and yeah, I don't know what whip it together looks like, but um, pretty fascinating. <laughs> it's not something I can whip together level. on like a Saturday afternoon, but pretty cool. No, no, I can't whip anything together. Um, <laughs> Really, maybe maybe whipping cream. pancakes. You whip it, yeah. I mean, but like the flour is like. I have a whole thing with making something from scratch. This is a whole other di- <laughs> diatribe I can okay. get into. I don't. I mean, making pancakes from scratch where I have the milled sugar, the ground flour, like that's not from scratch. I'm assembling pancakes. Let's be honest here. I'm assembling pancakes. Oh, it I'm doesn't count pancakes. from. You're going to be a real purist here. It doesn't count as from scratch unless well, you like I'm just, ground Let's be the careful out there about what we. Let's just be careful about from scratch. Just be careful. It's a it's hot not, take. It's not, poca- it's not post-apocalyptic if there are still people around. That's my. That's my other version of this. The that's apocalypse valid. is for everyone. Show title. <laughs> um. <laughs> all plots trend towards death. All, tr- all plots tend. All plots tend toward pancakes. Uh, Let's do a sponsor break and we'll come back. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of Just Some Stupid Love Story. So in Just Some Stupid Love Story by Caitlin Doyle, Molly and Seth were best friends turned lovers until Molly ghosted Seth on the eve of their high school graduation, which is very trifling, I might add. So now they've reunited again at their high school reunion 15 years later, and they make a bet. Whoever can predict the fate of five couples before the next reunion must declare that the other is right about true love. But what is the catch, you might ask? Well, the catch is that the fifth couple is them. Dun, dun, dun. So this is a callback to the best 90s and early 2000s rom-coms. If you like When Harry Met Sally or How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, this will be right up your alley. This is also perfect for fans of romance readers of Emily Henry, Catherine Center, and others like that. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of Just Some Stupid Love Story, for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Diana Dixon has a busy summer and no time for tall, gorgeous hockey player Shane's shenanigans. Because you know what? If they shenan once, they'll shenan again. So she thinks she knows exactly who he is when he moves into her apartment building. But turns out Shane's sick of hookups and tired of being on the rebound after his long-term girlfriend called it quits. But when his ex comes back into the picture, he needs a plan. And who better to play his new girlfriend than his sassy new neighbor? So a fake relationship might be perfect for Diana's own ex issues, but Diana is used to living by the rules. Will she learn that when it comes to love, rules are meant to be broken? Make sure to check out The Dixon Rule by L. Kennedy. L. Kennedy is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with over a million copies of her books sold. So this is going to be another banger, y'all. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. 
I kind of thought this could be our main discussion point that we've we've made. Um, we managed to whip up 25 minutes of discourse already. The Goodreads readers, most anticipated books of 2023, came out in December. I had this in my back pocket for a while, but at the end of, you know, in December, we tend to do look backs. We're not doing new stuff. And related to our discussion of our, our draft um, uh, structure, where mm-hmm. right now we're drafting for an imaginary person who sort of doesn't exist and are rethinking about this. This is sort of the ver- this is the um, this is the version that we would whip up if we were just trying to get votes. I guess if we're just <laughs> trying to get votes, we pull off this list because this is Goodreads readers, users, whatever you want to say, putting mm-hmm. them on their shelves, interacting with them ahead of time. Um, and again, this stretch, some of these go into May and June and beyond, so they were uh, um, outside the scope that we were looking at. I don't know. I, I thought we would talk about it for a few minutes. Was there anything here that you would have picked or that was otherwise interesting to you to notice? Um, one of them I know you read recently. You talked about uh, Really Good Actually mm-hmm. of late, which I thought was fascinating to see how many debut novels we hear, given how hard that can be. Yeah, how does I, Really Good Actually show up on here? How does I Mame think... or Ma'am by Jessica George show up here? I think this list that's a reflection of, as you were saying, readers putting a book on their want to read shelf is really, rather than a measure of most anticipated, it's really a measure of what upcoming books have been most effectively marketed. On Goodreads, Um, I guess, especially. Yeah, like, because really good actually, right, is a debut novel. I have seen a lot of marketing around it. That's how it first crossed my radar as well. If they ran Goodreads ads... I would assume that's one of the quickest ways to get a Goodreads user to like become aware of the book and add it mm-hmm. to their shelves, and especially as you're saying for a debut. You know, like there are some recognizable names on here. There's a new RF Kwong book. We get Brandon yeah. Taylor. There's an S.A. Cosby book later in the year. Rebecca Mackay's book that's coming out next month that we talked about on our draft is on here. So, and you know, Lee Bardugo, Salman Rushdie, like. Some of the names that are just going to be anticipated no matter what show up here. But I, I think a lot of this is really a snapshot at what has been effectively marketed, you know, really directly to Goodreads users. It's it's really interesting. It's more diverse than I think a list like this would have looked like a handful of years ago. And that's to stick in to stay inside the logic of this is mostly a reflection of marketing, an indication that marketing is reaching uh reaching readers for a wider kind a, a wider variety of books and maybe folks I, I assume if you're paying enough attention to books that you're like creating a good goodreads want to read list you're probably looking at a few other places um to get ideas about yeah. what to read as well but there wasn't anything that i was like oh i didn't know this was coming out and it's no. something that i missed for our winter draft i did get a few ideas of stuff to drop into my summer draft though yeah I should have given you like a truncated version of it. <laughs> I just had spoofed it. And maybe Chat guess GBT, what's on making here. Making a version of this website where I beat Rebecca. <laughs> Can I do that? Uh, you know, Can I got that? a print subscription to Publishers Weekly this year, so you're going to have to really give me heads up when you don't want me to no. look at something. <laughs> Come on. Dang it. I had information dissymmetry and that's gone. Great. You'll just Thanks tell me not to look at a thing and I won't. Great. I'll just abstain, but you're yeah. just going to have to tell sure. me. Don't read it. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I guess I should note here and how the, the construction of this list, let me just read the, the prose directly. The Goodreads editorial teams takes a look at the upcoming books that are being published in the U.S. We also track early reviews and crunch the numbers on how many readers are adding these books to their one-to-read shelves. All that information ultimately fuels our curated list of the most anticipated new releases of the upcoming year. So I don't know how much of the thumb of the editorial mm. team at Goodreads is on this list. I would I would guess if this was just a raw count of the most want-to-reads that, that are publishing in 2023, I think it's different than this list. I think that's true. And the... Goodreads Choice Awards for a while were like relatively yeah. uncurated. I think they've applied a little bit more editorial discretion to those in recent years mm-hmm. after recognition that if you just leave it up to like the wide blue ocean of the internet, things regress to the mean and the mean is still a very white list. Um, so yeah. that would be, I'm glad that that magic is happening. I would love to yeah. know. <laughs> we'll never know, but I would love how, to how know. How much thumb? How many right. thumbs how are ma- on this scale? Many, how many thumbs <laughs> It is. It's an interesting list. Like I think you could also to go back to our like fewer better. If you were the typical American heavy reader who was going to read a yeah. dozen or even twice that, you're going to read twenty five books. 
in a year, you could use a list like this and construct a pretty enjoyable, satisfying reading year for yourself. Yeah. My only gripe with a list like this, and I'll throw myself into this mix, is that nonfiction is one category. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I understand, right? Like Pulitzer Prizes, non I mean, maybe not Pulitzer Prize, but like some of the like nonfiction is one category, I think misrepresents how I agree. much nonfiction actually gets read. Uh, but that's that's a small quibble. Yeah. For I'm that. looking at all um, of these and then some of the some of the other like most anticipated lists that I used as research for my uh, winter draft stuff yeah. really scrolling through it gives me a lot of like why do all book covers look the same right now but I think that's a right. separate question <laughs> especially within genre yes like every romance cover yeah. looks like every other romance cover right now um, it must pretty, be working it's pretty striking <laughs> pinks and reds mm-hmm. yeah it's the new wild. Emily Henry it's, this it's year really is really interesting to see hot pink mm -hmm. that maybe that'll be the emily henry that actually gets me to read emily henry it's called happy place and it has a like gang gets back together vibe <laughs> so that might do it <laughs> is there a book you should write a book called the gang gets back together <laughs> just for seo purposes for yourself yeah it's a good collaboration we could work on that after mm. we write our business book to end all business books <laughs> I think chat GPT might buy that, <laughs> might do that for us. Um, speaking of putting your thumbs on the scales, mm -hmm. um, TikTok confirms that employees can decide what goes viral. This is something we talked about in relation to the best-selling books of the year, how many of them are either primarily or secondarily TikTok phenomenons, um, and the self reinforcing cycle that virality has things that go viral tend to go really viral and then the other things like those things also then tend to go mm -hmm. viral and you know fewer things get bigger essentially is what's happening and that's a big enough problem when it's the users doing that um, when it's their own biases and predilections fueling that algorithm in that cycle and we were talking about how if you want to create paradigms that are something other than the status quo, whether it's inclusion, diversity, genre, geo, whatever it else it might be, you need some kind of intervention. You need someone to say, what about this book? What do we do this? How can we give some special shine on this one? That can be good or bad, depending on what it's used for and then how transparent it is. Um, and only now are we getting confirmation that TikTok employees can basically press a button and maybe it sounds literally on their keyboard and <laughs> in the right interface with their thing and say, let's get this 3 million views. And some mm -hmm. of the employees have used this for their significant others or someone they know. Um, I don't know. I mean, that's not what you want, I guess. I, I, especially if, if you don't know and it's being used kind of willy nilly and doesn't seem like it's vouchsafed pretty, yeah. pretty well. So it, it feels a little bit like it's being left around on the carpet. Um, kind of a distressing story, I have to say. Yeah, I think big picture, distressing, worrisome about the kinds of information and ideas that could be widely disseminated because like yeah. somebody just felt like it that day. <laughs> um, and if you're a marketer yeah. who's been staring at TikTok for the last couple of years trying to figure out oh how you God, can yeah. use this thing to market your books, finding out that like just trying to follow the best practices that you've observed or that you've read about and then cross your fingers that yeah. you win on that lottery ticket like everybody knows it's a casino when you walk in there and I recognize I'm mixing my metaphors but like it's a casino and you know that that's what's happening when you put a video up and hope that it's going to go viral but finding out that the chance it's not like everybody has the same chance <laughs> Yeah, like some of the blackjack dealers are favoring some of the players right. or some of the hands. And like, what if, I don't know, what if somebody else has a friend who works at TikTok and they work for the co company you're competing with and that company gets their thing to go viral instead? There's just a billion what ifs that you can imagine about this. But like, I think writ large is a like one more reason to distrust the way that this piece of technology works or to take all of its outputs with a giant grain of salt or maybe all of the mm. above. 
So take a look at that if that's something you're interested in. Um, let's do a cool thing, and then we'll do a little frontless uh, foyer. You want to take us through this last cool thing? Yeah, this stuff? last cool thing, good good news of the week is that good Little news. Free Library, which if you're unfamiliar, Little Free Library is an, like, an official organization. You can only call your little library in your front yard, a little free library, if it comes through them and is registered. Um, they have partnered to launch indigenous an indigenous library program where it's called the LFL's Native Library Initiative. Um, it was part of an impact library program and it provides library boxes and starter sets at no cost to volunteer stewards in communities that are on native land in both the U.S. and Canada um, where the communities have limited or no access to books. And so they will ship off a little free library to appear um, in that native land. It comes with 25 books that are written or illustrated by BIPOC authors and artists. And the uh, well, two sets, one is 25 books written by BIPOC authors and artists, and the other is 25 books with content centering on indigenous people and communities. And then volunteers that the little free library community refers to as stewards are the ones that are responsible for keeping the little free library boxes stocked with other fresh books and sort of functional as a voluntary librarian basically a really cool partnership to see and overall it's been I think we're just really interesting to see how little free library has developed from just kind of this cool fun grassrootsy thing you could do in your own front yard unless you lived in Overland Park Kansas where they tried not to let that little girl have one into being a tool well, you're really holding on to that one Rebecca you're I holding am on to that one. Wow. I felt I mean yeah, that was that you're never gonna get over Overland Park. justice for her <laughs> You yeah. know, let the kids have their little free libraries, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> um, but very cool to see how I think intentional and wide ranging little free libraries work has become to go beyond doing a cool thing in the reading community to really focusing on additional ways to, to provide access and to do literary activism. And I'm always happy to see that. Um, but it's nice to see it from an organization that like they were already doing a neat thing but to recognize like we could do something that really has meaningful impact here so you can read more about that at the link in the show notes all right frontless foyer anything you want to shout out oh this week? boy i have started big swiss but i haven't gotten far enough into it mm. to say anything really yet um because i spent my week with don delillo in my brain yeah so my whole That's week fine. was really white noise. Yeah. Why don't white you, noise. Have you recovered from your so Cormac McCarthy moment? I did. I mean, I read some stuff around Cormac McCarthy, but I really needed to, to get that out there. Um, had some people mm -hmm. email in to respond to my um, expurgation of whatever <laughs> that just happened. Uh, sympathize, uh, rationalize, um, other, other eyes that happened there. Uh, let me do a couple. I got a lot I could talk about. How do I, how do I put these together? I should have thought this before. Um, let me do a couple of debut novels that okay. I read um, so far in January that I really liked. The Bandit Queens by Perini Shore um, came out. I think it's a Ballantine book. I don't have it in front of me. Long story short, it's set in India. And I'm not actually sure when it is, um, mm. when in the century. So there's TVs and refrigerators, but I was having a hard time like pegging it. to. I don't know the, the history well enough to like do the, the off- mention of a historical event or a politician but like using the tech it could have been in any time from like the 30s to the 90s as far as i can tell there weren't cell phones but it's a it's an impoverished community so even that could have been okay. a little bit hard to say but anyway it's a group um in a small town um a couple small communities related to each other and the titular bandit queens are these women who together, it must be actually pretty recent because they're in part of this like micro loan group where like, mm. you know, people give micro loans to um, people in developing countries and communities for them to use and develop a business. So maybe that's more modern, I think, now I think about it. That's the one thing I can place relatively recently, I think. And so they're kind of friends, but kind of not these women. Like they're related through, they, they kind of share resources and they make a payment to the loan together. And I think they do it every every week. So they're not quite enemies. They're not quite friends. They compete and not. So it's kind of an interesting community space. But one thing they have in common, or most of them have in common, is that they're subject of abuse by a man in their life of some kind. Mm. And the main character takes inspiration from a historical figure known as the Bandit Queen, who was horribly abused and trafficked 
and then sort of Zorro-liked, revisited uh, vengeance upon those who wronged her and then did a little extra for some other people. Okay. And they form, their microloan community kind of becomes a mutual kill em or jail em society uh, of the men vigilante in justice business happening. Yeah, a little vigilante. And the thing that struck me too is kind of coming after our conversation about lessons in chemistry, mm. it's way funnier than the description I, I, I just gave. Ah. It's pretty light, actually. So it has a heisty zaniness there's a lot of really funny dialogue um there but also some really bad things happening so i'm, I'm putting this in another check mark of this sweet and sour approach mm-hmm. to dealing with issues of of domestic violence and, and and gendered violence um i thought it was a really strong outing from this this author that was new to me it got some publicity it, it came out hot i think it was like the first tuesday and they were kind of using that space to, to clear some space out for it I thought it was really, really good, um, and I'm still kind of wrestling with what do I? Is it? I guess it's commercial fiction. In an older, in an older time, the subject matter would have been very straight, played very serious and dour, hmm. um, and you don't have to do that if you yeah. don't want to anymore. That's cool. The community; these 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 women still laugh. They still give you hard each other a hard time. Um, they still are interested in what food they're making and what they're going to wear, but also. What if we poisoned your husband and he was out of the picture? <laughs> it That's sounds like too. kind of a uh, sister to The Change by Kristen Miller from last year. Kirsten yeah, Miller? it is. Okay. It is. It is. I would say that um, there's no supernatural element, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's one particular difference. I think actually the interpersonal dynamics of the Bandit Queens is more interesting than in The cool. Change. Like the friendship dynamics and then the enemy, frenemy dynamics are very, very interesting. And then plus a world I don't know. I mean, I don't know the world of like super high-end Long Island, but that's much more familiar to me than rural India of people trying to like make better sweaters with the or, or get another goat to add to their retinue so they make their lives a little bit easier. And a lot of the questions are the same um, at a different kind of scale. Um, mm-hmm. But I thought it was really good. The other one I want to shout out, In the Upper Country by Kai Thomas, came oh. out this year. Um, okay. This is a book about a, it's set in kind of a composite town in Canada of several kind of towns that were like this um, during U.S. slavery that were kind of the end of the very end of the Underground Railroad all the way into Canada. So you're, we're blowing past Pennsylvania. We're blowing past some of these other places, um, especially earlier when slavery was legal in some other places, but especially in the, um, I think in the couple of decades right before the Civil War, Let's just get all the way to Canada. And then there's some intra-Canada stuff that I didn't quite understand. But anyway, this town is largely black people, largely populated by people who are either um, escaped slaves themselves or were escaped slaves themselves, um, and then servicing people that are trafficking in that mm-hmm. area. And, so, and initiated by, there's a murder of someone who came to get someone and take them back to old Kentucky. And that starts to peel back the layers of the story onion about this town, these people, what they've gone through, what the conditions are, um, who gets to tell a story, how is it told. Um, it was really, it was really good. It was really good. It was an excellent, excellent book. Um, looking forward to more from Kai Thomas. Cool. Wouldn't be surprised to see it on debut novel lists of the year kind of stuff. Um, really cool to see. So there's my two. Oh, my last one. This is more for you to get a, not a laugh out of, but um, I'll talk to you about it anyway. I read The Creative Act by Rick Rubin. Have you had any knowledge of what this book is? I was actually going to ask listeners for a take on it because okay. I've been seeing it sort of bubble up and then not quite deciding if I was going to read it or not. Yeah. So Rick Rubin, a noted record producer, um, an interesting character of the the late 20th century, especially mm-hmm. into the early 21st. And he has this book called The Creative Act that's a very coffee table-y book. Like, it's really designed. It looks like it could be an art and design book. And I thumbed through it quickly, and then I decided to get it on audio because that's how I do most nonfiction. Um, and at first, I really hated it. <laughs> Tell and then me about it got that. Worse. <laughs> and then it got worse. And then I've kind of come around to it, actually, okay. in the end. So it's more like... It's this is not a researched, you know, kind of double blind experimental. This is not an Adam Grant kind of thing. It's also not a it's not a anecdote here in my life as a record producer and hear stories about Dre and Eminem and those kinds of people because he could easily do that. Sure. And he alludes 
without specifics to notable singer did this thing. Hmm. It's very much like a, almost like a devotional that you read through. And one of the things it says at the beginning is like, these are all here for you to take. Take the ones you want. Discard the ones that don't make sense to you or don't work for you, which which I kind of appreciate. Oh, so like the practices of creativity? Yeah, but like habits of mind, kind okay. of thought technologies. Philosophy. Things you might try, philosophies. But some of it is like so, like he does the whole, you can't step into the same river twice because it changes without like without referencing Heraclitus. And that's like a, like, or that's like a, like a cliche. <laughs> right. it, it's, a, it's It's wisdom. That is also now kind of a cliche to mm-hmm. say that, right? But he right. doesn't. Think, it's very earnest and straightforward. I see. And I was like, oh my god, this is this is someone who he may be very good at what he does. I mean, it's hard to argue with the results, but this is the best he could do after many years of being in creative rooms at, and hours on end with oh. some of the most notable creative figures of our time. But then it came to be like, you might try this, you might try that. This is a bad habit of mind. Here's something I found to be more helpful. Hmm. And you kind of have to let it flow over you. And I actually did start just saying, okay, rather than letting being poisoned by a cliche or something that seems so overly generic or some of this, you know, open yourself to the universe and it wants you to do it. Okay, just just ignore that. If I could just put that to the side, kind of like he told me to, there were some other things I found pretty interesting. And it wasn't very long, so that's nice. Okay. Um, I, I was of two minds about it. I, I guess it's hard to say in a, in a book of advice to say, it's kind of a weird trick to say, just take the advice that makes sense to you before you've used it. Because isn't that like kind of a reinforcing of your own whatever? It's like, yeah. How do you not do confirmation said, this is a thing. bias there? Yeah. Well, that's, yeah. It, it should be called confirmation bias by Rick Rubin. I was thinking the same thing. So I don't know. It was weird. I, I, I guess it wouldn't take you very long. And maybe you could flip through it. It doesn't have to go in any order. So if you picked it up at the bookstore, got it from the mm-hmm. library... I can imagine be kind of the kind of thing where if you worked in a creative field and you got stuck and you're mm. just for looking for something to try, um, it's like, okay, well, here's one. Th- I'm trying to think of some of the specific, you know, write the end first, something like play, a lot of it's music oriented, but like play the quiet part loud or play the vocals only. Or actually, if you think, if you're a vocalist, turn off the vocals on the track and just listen to the rest of it. Hmm. And a lot of it is just trying to like shake you out of your stuckedness in it. Um, which I thought was pretty interesting. But then there's a part where he's like, you need to be open to the universe because then you can get what you need. And he's like, my appendix was hurting. I went to the doctor. He said my appendix could, should come out. Well, I happened to be browsing through this bookstore and I happened to open this book to this one page that says you don't necessarily need to have your appendix out. So now I still have my appendix. I'm like, what is that? That's a little secret kind of Is that of the stuff. secret? That's, the, yeah, that's I manifesting. Like, I, I, that really turns me off. But I, the thing I had to do was like, don't get turned off by the things that turned me off. Okay. Just move past Just it. Just let them go. And see if there's anything that you found interesting. So Interesting. I don't know. I guess it got me to do <laughs> to shake me out of my um, priors of reading. It was that a weird one. That was a strange one to me, I have to admit. Gets at the questions that I was having about it. Because I'm like, I'm like yeah. casually familiar with Rick Rubin. Definitely with, you know the work that he's done and a lot of the artists that he's worked with. And I was, I've read a couple of profiles of him as the book has come out. Oh yeah, he's out out there, baby. He's out there. Right. And so the the question I had, I was really trying to get to is, will this be useful or new or surprising? Will it get me out of my stuckness in some way? Or will it be like stoner, the stoner guy who like says the thing and thinks it's way more wise than it is. (laughs) And maybe I think there's it'll be both. both. I think that's yeah. what I'm saying. I yeah. think there's some of both in there. And if you can shed or ignore or hold in abeyance the eye rolling pieces, because I think some of you, you and I will have some of the same moments of that. And I think the more specific he gets, the better. The more mm-hmm. general stuff, I'm like, okay, fine. But the more specific things like, what if you tried writing the paragraph from the other point of view? Or write if, mm-hmm. what if you just mm-hmm. tried to write it backwards, that sentence? just to shake you out and look at something from a different perspective. A lot of the stuff could be boiled down to how can you look at this thing from a different perspective? Um, Which is an Adam Grant book. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's right. But then you have to read all the Adam Grant things of double blind tests, right? <laughs> right, right. No, I'm serious. I think, no, 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 right. I think different audiences the casualness, for this than for the Adam Grant book. Yes. Yeah. I think the casualness, this, the elliptical kind of loose nature of it 
is both a feature and a bug, but it just presents something yeah. in a slightly, I mean, well, a, a meaningfully different way. That sounds a lot like the experience I had with the Matthew McConaughey memoir, which has grown in uh, estimation in my memory. Like, it was a good right. hang, and there was plenty that I was like, okay, yeah, we're not going to, like, float naked in a river in the Amazon in the middle of the night. That right. sounds dangerous. That's, Yeah. That's that's fine for other people. Right. I'm glad he has that. But the stuff that yeah. was good, like maybe it's a kind of come for the nuggets, let the rest fall away reading experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Come for the nuggets is a good yeah, show and you have to get You have to get away from, I've seen some of like just the clips of like him on 60 Minutes or whatever looking like, you know, if Jack Black was 70 year old Jesus, <laughs> his, his affection, his affectation that he does. Like, I don't need that. Maybe that really works for some people. But I was trying to get over my own biases, right? Yeah, like, there's yeah. got there's something interesting here. It's someone that's interesting. They have a lot of experience. I really want the Rick Rubin memoir now. Yes. Speaking of scorched earth memoirs. Um, oh, oh yeah, maybe. yeah. Uh, I think I saw Ezra Klein post like a quote from the book on Instagram, and I was like, oh, an Ezra Klein interview with Rick Rubin could be all it's kinds of things. It's almost made to be Instagram quote. Favorable okay. because it's so the connective tissue is so light and it's so broken up. And again, I did an audio and I haven't done everything, but there's like aphorisms and little sections and there's okay. a lot of white space in the whole the whole ideation of the thing. But again, I'm not. I don't think this is for someone who's looking for a, a peer reviewed <laughs> study of how creativity happens. This is almost like a devotional mm-hmm. in a way. Like pick it up when it's useful. Do your morning and then pages. Put it down when it's yeah. Not. yeah, yeah. So anyway, created back by Rick Rubin. I was out of my comfort zone and I stayed there for most of it. But ultimately, <laughs> I'm glad that I had the the creative act experience. Yeah. Also, the pomposity of calling it the creative <laughs> act. I mean, come on. <laughs> I'm gonna have to pick up a copy now just for the joy of texting you about it. <laughs> yeah. I think that's how that's gonna go. Yeah. So anyway, that's mine. That's our show. As always, you can find links, bookriot.com slash listen. Um, come check out the Patreon, either as a subscriber or as a new one for our white noise. I'm going to have to go carb up here real quick because this we gotta, we got we to gotta buckle in. we got to get in the, um, the Buick um, and get on the highway uh, and, and, and drive toward the toxic event here in a few minutes. You can shoot us an email, podcast at bookriot.com. Rebecca, a pleasure as always, and I'll talk to you extremely soon. <laughs> Thank you.